Well, uh, you can call this a revival. You can call it an awakening. Uh, you can call it a movement. You can call it a fresh spirit of the Holy Spirit, a fresh, a fresh uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. I frankly don't know what to call it, uh, but the Holy Spirit is moving at Asbury University uh, in Kentucky. Amen. Amen. That's worthy of applause. It's worthy of our praise. Uh, students, uh, 11 days ago now, uh, Wednesday, uh, 11 days ago, attended just a regular uh, worship chapel that they have, I think, daily at that campus, and they never left. Uh, they stayed, uh, they, they read scripture, they praised the Lord, they prayed, they're proclaiming the gospel, they're repenting of sin. Uh, and I, I am cautiously optimistic that, that this is not just some feel-good sleepover party, right? This is now 11 days in the making. Uh, people are, are coming in large crowds. They're traveling from around the country now uh, to be part of this thing uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, these people are confessing their sin, they're repenting of it, they're renewing their faith and their commitment to Jesus. Uh, and this has begun to spread. Uh, we're starting to see evidence of this at Cedarville University in Ohio and Lee University in Tennessee and in other places as well. So, so God is up to something. He's up to something, and I'm really excited about it. And I've been praying uh, every day that this revival would spread uh, to other schools, of course, but not just limited to schools. Uh, why not our churches? Why, why not uh, the Holy Spirit come and revive us again uh, in the church? And that's why I felt uh, compelled to hold a revival day here uh, at Grace Redeemer uh, this past Monday. Uh, and we had people coming and, and uh, we were praying and, and praising God and telling our testimonies about how God rescued us uh, from the power of sin and what he's doing in our lives now and, and uh, uh, just thinking about uh, the goodness of God. And, and while we were here, we prayed that this revival would spread uh, not only among the churches, but also into our government buildings, right? How amazing uh, would it be uh, if the people that we elected would love Jesus and then bring biblical values uh, back to their offices uh, and, and that uh, holy biblical values uh, would spread? Uh, what changes might we see? How, how, might, be God, how might God be glorified if, if revival caught uh, and spread even into uh, our government? And what a fire that would be that, that might spread throughout the whole country. Well, this is what's happening at Asbury, and, and uh, whenever we proclaim the name of Jesus, we are pointing back in time, right, to a real historical figure, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, God's only son who lived a sinless life uh, and then died on the cross, was buried, uh, and then rose again and ascended to the Father. Now, we have the blessing of the New Testament, right, uh, which helps us to, uh, explains to us exactly what happened and, and all the history, all the theology uh, that is there. So we have a great advantage over the first century church who didn't have the scriptures yet. We know uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the bridge uh, back to God. Uh, and, and through uh, faith in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life in heaven. Now, what's happening in Asbury, this revival, uh, if that's what we're going to call it, uh, points back to Jesus, right? They're, they're pointing to a historical figure, and they're proclaiming his name and watching uh, what the Holy Spirit does. Now, when Jesus began his public ministry some 2,000 years ago, uh, he wasn't really trying to start a revival the way we think of revival today, uh, because, you know, the thing we revival around still hadn't lived, died, and, and, and buried and risen again yet. Uh, but he was pointing back to something, right? He was pointing back to God's promises 
of a Messiah, a, a greater Moses who would one day come, uh, the, fu- the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. He was pointing back to that. And then he was pointing at himself and saying, what you've been waiting for, he's here in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and so uh, repent and believe. Uh, and that's what Jesus wanted to get them uh, to do. Uh, so uh, we would ask, how would uh, an unknown person, an obscure uh, carpenter from some unknown village in Nazareth, uh, come into new cities and convince the people uh, that he was who he was claiming to be? Well, in my mind, Jesus did it the only way that makes sense. Uh, First thing he did was he claimed to be that person. He claimed to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy by saying uh, he is the Messiah. And he said that when he said the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he taught with authority, uh, authority that the scribes that they had uh, listened to uh, clearly didn't have. And then, uh, just for good measure, uh, he cast a demon uh, out of the synagogue, out of a man in the synagogue. Uh, All these things to prove he was who he claimed to be. And in response, the people debated about who he was. Uh, Isn't that interesting? Uh, Just as people today debate about who he was, just as people debate today about whether what's happening in Asbury is real or whether it's just a a bunch of kids uh, seeking attention, having fun, pretending that the Holy Spirit is moving, uh, but it's not a real revival. Uh, Now, I don't know if it's a real revival or not. We'll know it by its fruit. Uh, But what I do know is that uh, there are people praying there Uh, reading the scriptures, uh, people are being saved, uh, people are being touched, and the Holy Spirit uh, seems to be moving. Uh, So uh, I think in what what I see is that they're uh, obeying the first command in Jesus's passage today, uh, what he spoke, which is repent and believe the gospel. And I see a lot of young people doing that at Asbury University, and I'm excited by it. Well, Jesus commanded his first hearers 2,000 years ago to repent and believe the gospel. And we'll talk more Uh, in a minute about what that means. Uh, And then after that, he called his first disciples. And the term for disciple simply means uh, a student or a learner, Uh, but it's also a follower, uh, someone who obeys Jesus's teaching and then makes Jesus's teaching the rule of his or her life. Uh, He follows, she follows uh, what Jesus says. And that's who Jesus called people to be. Uh, And so uh, at the time, some believed and others were skeptical, uh, just like the Asbury thing that's happening right now. Uh, And so, uh, either way, uh, the word is getting out, right? Uh, This revival uh, happening at Asbury is now on national news. It was on the cover of the Washington Post yesterday, I think, and uh, some national news organization, maybe Fox News or somebody, uh, was covering it this morning. So the word is getting out. Uh, And so 2,000 years ago, uh, the word got out about Jesus, too. As soon as he did these amazing miracles, the word spread everywhere, it says. And so for all who heard, they had to decide. Who did they believe Jesus was? So let's talk about how Jesus commenced his ministry by preaching, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, now, I just want to explain before we dive in here that... that, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all skip over the first part of Jesus' ministry that happened in the area of Judea and in Jerusalem, uh, 75 miles south of Galilee. Uh, The only details we have from Jesus' very early ministry are from the Gospel of John. Most of chapters 
uh, 1 through 4 of John happen before the Gospel of Mark even begins. Uh, but Mark begins his, minis- his Gospel in Galilee. Remember we said during the introduction, the first nine chapters of, Jesus, of uh, the Gospel of Mark take place in Galilee. Chapter 10 happens on the way to Jerusalem, and then chapters 11 through 16 happen in Jerusalem. So uh, going, moving north to south, that's how Mark organized his Gospel. Uh, so in those early days, some of the things that, that Mark skipped over were Jesus clearing the temple in John chapter 2 and his meeting with Nicodemus in uh, John chapter 3. Uh, Mark begins his, his gospel in Galilee after those things had already happened, and his disciples had already you know, had some familiarity uh, with Jesus. Uh, so uh, we, we don't really get that when we read Mark because it just is out of the blue. Jesus walks into Galilee and he starts calling people. Well, Uh, His disciples already knew who he was because they had already met him earlier in Jerusalem and some had come to faith in him. So speaking about Galilee, uh, Galilee, this is a map of Israel. That that little, uh, you know, small bluish lake up there at the top, that is the Sea of Galilee and that is the the area of Galilee in northern Israel. And as I said, uh, the first nine chapters of Mark happen in these various towns uh, that surround Galilee. I, I moved that slide. Uh, I'll show you that slide in a second. Uh, there are various towns surrounding the uh, Sea of Galilee, which is where um, a lot of his ministry in chapters 1 through 9 of uh, Mark take place. And Mark also just kind of glossed over the fact here, uh, verse 14, uh, that uh, Ante- uh, Herod Antipas put John the Baptist in prison. Now, John, uh, Mark was gonna, going to return to that story in chapter 6. But what Mark is doing here is his point is to show that the baton has been passed from John the Baptist to Jesus. John has done his job. John the Baptist has done his job. He has heralded this coming Messiah. Uh, He has made his path straight. Now he's in prison, and now Jesus is beginning his public ministry. So Jesus came into Galilee at a specific time when John was taken into custody. Uh, And he came to a specific place preaching this gospel in this area in northern Israel. And the message that he's preaching is the gospel of the good news. So Jesus didn't come to convict uh, or to judge. He came to save. Uh, And uh, his threefold message that he says in verses 14 to 15 indicates that. So the time is fulfilled. This is the first thing uh, that he says. So the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, God is sovereign over everything that happens in the world. We know this, right? And we also know that God is sovereign over the timing of everything that happens in the world. So it was God's will, it was God's decision to send Jesus at this particular point in time. Now, when we read some of the later gospel or later epistle writers, for example, Paul in Galatians said this, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. You see that? The same kind of phraseology. And the author of Hebrews said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days, has spoken to us through his son. So uh, Paul and the author of Hebrews both recognized uh, what Jesus said here uh, in Mark uh, chapter 1 as being true, that the time is fulfilled. And so uh, Jesus declared that the time of the promised Messiah is now here. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the second thing he says. When, when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, it's often a synonym for himself. Uh, he is the kingdom of God uh, come personally. 
Now, the Jews of his day, of course, were expecting uh, the, the kingdom of God to appear in a military Messiah who was going to uh, overthrow Rome and restore uh, the kingdom of Israel to, to its glory days that it enjoyed under David and, and under Solomon, uh, a kingdom on earth. And the people were expecting that to be something in the future uh, that would come at some later date. Uh, and they didn't understand necessarily that Jesus wasn't promising them a physical kingdom on earth, but a spiritual kingdom in their hearts where God rules and reigns. And Jesus says uh, the kingdom of God is not future like you might expect. It's, it's here. It's right here. It's right now. It, it, it's here for the taking. And you can take it uh, if you will take hold of me. Well, how does one seize the kingdom of God? And that's the third thing Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, that's how we seize the kingdom of God. Uh, as we said last week, repent is from the Greek word metanoia, uh, which simply means to, to change your mind about something. And in this case, we're changing our minds about Jesus, of course. Uh, repent and believe are simultaneous events. Repent, believe. They're two signs of the same coin. Uh, so when we, when we repent and believe, we, we, are, we are turning away from sin and we're turning to Jesus all at the same time. We're turning to Jesus for salvation. Now, obviously, uh, at this point, at these early, in the early chapters of Mark here, the gospel message doesn't include uh, salvation uh, through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That hasn't happened yet. Uh, so here, the command to believe only means uh, to believe uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus. Uh, and so this is the call. He's calling them to repent, uh, believe, follow me. Now, what's interesting is that Mark doesn't mention that anybody did uh, respond to this message at all until uh, Jesus called some of his disciples in these next verses. So let's read verses 16 to 20. See, Jesus calls his disciples. As he was going along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will have you become fishers of people. Immediately after they left their nets, or immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. All right, so uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the slide that I thought I had earlier, but uh, you can see it there. It's not a very large sea, and you can see some of the towns uh, up on the northern end uh, surrounding it. So this is in northern Israel. The Sea of Galilee uh, is, is very small. It's really just a lake. It's 13 miles by 8 miles. Now, by comparison, just to put that in perspective, uh, Lake Michigan is 307 miles by 118 miles. So I don't know how many Sea of Galilees you can fit into Lake Michigan, but quite a few. Uh, it's a very small lake. And these towns that you see up there on the screen, if you're coming to Israel with us, we're going to visit all of these little towns, uh, and I hope that you'll be coming. Uh, but for those of you who aren't, I'm going to keep referring to this map. I want you to get this geography down so we can get a better feel for Jesus' movements as he moves about uh, Galilee as we proceed through Mark. All right, so as I said a minute ago, uh, when we... When we uh, kind of set the, go the Gospels side by side 
we understand that, that Mark chapter 1 happens after uh, John chapters 1 through 4. So the disciples already knew who he was. They had met him uh, in uh, Judea and, and in Jerusalem. Uh, we already saw that, that, John had, or that Jesus had called uh, Andrew uh, and had introduced him to Peter. Uh, that has already happened in, in John chapter 1. So, so when we, we get this coming into a Galilee and calling these disciples, uh, we get the sense from Mark that this is the first time they had ever seen Jesus before. And that's not true. They had seen Jesus earlier in John. Uh, what we have here is not necessarily a call to faith as much as it is a call to discipleship. It's a call to discipleship. And so uh, in Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus calls these two sets of brothers. He calls Andrew and Peter, and then he calls James and John, uh, and he calls them to follow him. Now, they, of course, don't understand at all the full scope of what this is going to uh, entail. They don't know what the mission ahead is, but they trusted Jesus on a journey that would test their faith and make them question everything that they believed in. And that's discipleship, right? Going where you don't know. Jesus is leading. You don't know where he's taking you necessarily, but you're following him anyway. And so I want us to notice uh, as, as faithful believers in Jesus Christ that there is a difference between faith and discipleship. True believers become disciples. Uh, so faith is belief, but discipleship is growing in your belief, growing in your faith, growing in obedience, making other disciples. Uh, many people have a very lukewarm faith about Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, they, they might say something like a pastor friend of mine used to say, uh, I got my hell insurance, right, and I'm good to go. And that's as far as they ever grow. They, they know or they believe that they are saved and they never grow beyond that. Uh, lukewarm faith that, that doesn't produce any real effect on someone's life uh, is really a faith, I think, that, that doesn't please Jesus because it's not a faith that's growing and, and, and bearing fruit. Uh, so to do that, we need to spend time in the Word. We need to spend time in prayer. And people who don't do that, uh, they profess faith, but that faith never moves them to action. Now, I am not anyone's judge, uh, but I do wonder if faith that doesn't lead to discipleship is really true faith at all. It may take some time for uh, uh, someone who has faith to become a true disciple, uh, but it ought to happen. Uh, it, it, it ought to happen. Real faith will produce discipleship. And again, by discipleship, I just mean obedience to Christ, a hunger for him, growing in faith, life change, bearing fruit. All these things ought to happen in uh, a, a, a true believer. So, uh, again, I've been fascinated by what's happening uh, in Asbury, Kentucky over the past 11 days. Here are a group of believers who are pursuing God. They're imploring the Holy Spirit to, to uh, come to them, to remain with them. Uh, they're reading the scripture. They're praying. They're praising. They're proclaiming uh, the good news. They're confessing sin, repenting of it, recommitting their lives uh, to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is filling them. Now, are there some people there who are charlatans? Are there some people there who are going to see this great thing and go and try and figure out how to, how to make a buck off of this thing? Yeah, that's going to happen because people are people and people are sinners. But I think in the main, as Jonathan Edwards used to say, in the main when he was talking about uh, the efficacy of, the, of the, uh, the first great awakening, he said, in the main, uh, this is real and this is from God. And I'm praying that this uh, in, in Kentucky is uh, real and it is from God. And we will know it is by the fruit that it bears. 
uh, the people will leave there and they will go back to their homes and they will make disciples. Uh, if it's real, that's what's going to happen. If it's not, it's going to dissolve and nothing will come of it. So we'll know uh, in time. But I'm praying uh, that this is a real revival. And as I was reminded during our revival day at Grace Redeemer this week by a very wise woman in our church, she said, uh, James said, we do not have because we do not ask. And that is true. Uh, so what prevents us from asking the Holy Spirit to come right here among our body right now and say, uh, Holy Spirit, come fill us again. Give us a fresh filling. Uh, give us excitement. Uh, uh, break us out of, of any uh, staleness that, that's uh, come into our faith and, and show us what you have for us to do and make us excited again about uh, preaching the word and making other disciples. Uh, that may seem impossible even in this building, uh, but it's not. The Holy Spirit can do anything. You know, I was thinking about this revival day and I thought, what if I got in my car and drove to Kentucky? That would take me 12 hours to do it. I don't really have 12 hours or, or days to go to Kentucky, uh, but I would have loved to have done it. I want to see it for myself. But then I thought, you know, it's a lot easier for the Holy Spirit to travel to me than it is for me to travel to the Holy Spirit. So why don't we ask the Holy Spirit to come? And so that's what we did. We asked the Holy Spirit to come. So uh, we ask the Holy Spirit to do impossible things because God can do what seems impossible to us, right? So we, we call out to him. We ask the Lord's blessing on our church and our city and our county and our state, our country, indeed the whole world. That's what disciples do. A true disciple has to be all in. A, a true disciple is not halfway in, you know, with his toe in the water. We got to be fully immersed in this thing. And so that's what we see from Peter and Andrew. Jesus called them. They dropped their nets immediately, and they followed him. Then Jesus called James and John. Immediately, they dropped their nets. They follow him. They left their father's fishing business, which was probably quite lucrative, and they followed Jesus. So have we done that? Have we done that, brothers and sisters? Not you, not me, we. Have we done that? Have we dropped everything to follow him? You know, it's very easy for us to keep one foot dipped in the world and one foot dipped in the kingdom. Uh, and it's hard because we are people, we have bills to pay, we have jobs we have to go to, uh, and, and we have to make money to, to earn money for our families. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus did that before he began his public ministry working in his father's carpentry shop. But though we are in the world, we, we do not have to be uh, subject to the ways of the world. Uh, we, we are forced to conform to them in some ways. We're expected to show up at work. But uh, we are meant to be in the world and yet not of the world, right? And there's a big difference between those things. Christians should look different. Uh, our ways are to imitate Jesus's ways and not the ways of the world. So we can follow Jesus while we live in the world, just not following the world system with its sin and its corruption and its self-promotion and its consumerism. Jesus's call to us is to leave all that behind, leave that behind and follow me. And the call is sacrificial. It's a sacrificial call. It's going to cost us a lot. It can cost us friends, job promotions, reputation. In other countries, it can cost us imprisonment, beatings, torture, even our lives uh, if we were to uh, take this message into other countries. But if our walk with Christ hasn't cost us anything, if, 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 if there's nothing that we can say, yeah, you know, I, I walk with Christ, and now that thing that I used to have, that friend I used to have, that job I used to have, I, I don't have that anymore. Well, uh, if, if that hasn't happened for us, I think we really ought to question 
whether we're really following him. Have we truly left our nets to follow him? Have we become fishers of men? That's what a disciple does, and it's expensive. It's going to cost us something. You know, Jesus didn't need any particular skill that these disciples had, right? They were fishermen. They were, you know, not, not especially brilliant people, uh, right? They weren't especially skilled people. Uh, Jesus called them not for anything that they possessed, but to be witnesses for what he was going to do. Now, look, see what I'm going to do, and then after I'm gone, you go proclaim the things that I am doing. Uh, and so from here now, from this point on, uh, until the end of Mark chapter 1 and into Mark chapter 2, we're going to see Jesus start to do things. He's casting out demons. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He performs various other healings, including uh, healing a paralytic and a leper. And all this to show that Jesus is the Messiah that he is claiming to be and the Messiah that they were expecting from their Old Testament scriptures. And so in the next verses, Jesus begins by showing his authority over the supernatural demonic forces of Satan. And here we see that Jesus is going to cast out demons, verses 21 to 28. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. After throwing him into convulsions and crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding region of Galilee. So again, uh, Capernaum uh, is up here in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is an aerial view. Uh, of So this is a, a large aerial shot of the whole sea. This is an aerial view of Capernaum uh, on your uh, right side. That is the synagogue that stands there now. In the middle is uh, Peter's house. They've built an octagonal church over uh, Peter's house now, and we can go and uh, see that in October, which we certainly will do. Uh, and so as you come down into Capernaum now, here is the entry gate into the town of Capernaum itself. You walk through that to enter the city today. And this is the synagogue uh, where Jesus taught. Now, I say this is the synagogue where Jesus taught. This is actually a second century uh, reproduction of the synagogue. Uh, the first synagogue uh, is no longer there. Uh, this one was built in about 100 to 200 AD. It's been standing for some 18 to 1900 years. But if you look real close uh, at the bottom of, the, uh, of this picture here, you can see this is kind of a darker gray, blackish kind of foundation. That's probably the foundation to the original synagogue, and this uh, other white stone was put on top of it. Uh, so that's what's there now. Now synagogues uh, developed in, uh, after Babylon exiled Israel and destroyed their temple, right? The people needed a place to gather together. And so synagogues began to pop up, and they could be established wherever uh, 10 or more uh, Jewish men who were 12 years old or older uh, wanted to establish one. So there were synagogues cropping up all over. They were not a place of sacrifice, but, but for teaching and, and for worship and cultural preservation. They were the, the community centers of the town. 
And so that's why the Pharisees' power to cast someone out of the synagogue was so terrifying. It's where people did business. It's where they, they schmoozed and made deals and, and all kinds of things happened at the synagogue. So to be cast out of the synagogue meant to be cast out of public life. Now, these synagogues usually had no permanent teacher. Uh, they were kind of what they, what they called the freedom of the synagogue. And that meant that if, uh, if somebody came through who was a, a rabbi or some other kind of learned man, he might be invited to speak at the synagogue that day. And so on this particular day, uh, Jesus entered the synagogue and somebody must have invited him to speak. And when he got up to speak, uh, two things happened. He taught with authority and he cast out demons. So Jesus' first thing that he does is he amazes the people with the power of his teaching. Now, Mark didn't record anything he said, but he did record the reaction of the people. They were amazed. They were amazed at what Jesus said. Uh, this, this word uh, amazed has, uh, has power to it, like astonished or something like that. Now, scribes in ancient Israel, they were the ones who would teach uh, on, a given, uh, on a given day uh, if there was nobody else traveling through town. Uh, but the scribes' business was to study the law, to transcribe it, to write commentaries on it, and then they would speak about it. Uh, when Jesus began to teach, it was clear that his authority was much greater than the authority of the scribes because the scribes' authority was derivative, right? They learned from rabbi so-and-so or, or whatever, and they went to this school or whatever, or whatever to get their a seal of approval uh, to get their diploma so that they could be free to, to speak in these synagogues. But, but it was clear to them that Jesus had his own authority. He didn't need the stamp of approval from rabbi so-and-so or, or a degree from you know, the Harvard University of, of Israel, whatever it was at the time. Uh, his authority came from his identity as God, from who he was. Uh, that's what gave him his identity. And so uh, no one can interpret Scripture like the author of Scripture, right? Jesus wrote it, and so who better uh, to interpret it? And Mark, he frequently records people's reactions uh, to what Jesus has said. And so they recognize that, that his teaching was powerful, and it was new, and it was compelling, and they were amazed. He spoke with authority and the people recognized it. And then he exercised his authority over this unclean spirit. Uh, there was a, a man sitting in that synagogue the whole time. And Jesus' teaching provoked an outburst from this demon. What business do we have with each other? Uh, and so uh, that is a Jewish idiom uh, that, that kind of contrasts uh, the incompatibility of, a, of opposing forces. So what business does light have with darkness? What business does evil have with good? Uh, what business do, do you have with us, Jesus? Uh, and so they, the demon recognized Jesus' identity, and he recognized Jesus' authority. And notice that, that his reaction is, is full of fear and it's full of dread because Jesus has authority over this demon. And not only that demon, but all demonic forces. That's why he says, uh, have you come to destroy us, us, all of us demons? And what's interesting is that the demon-possessed man knew who Jesus was long before anybody else did, right? And, and as we read through uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, his disciples call him teacher, they call him Lord, they call him Master, they call him Son of David, but they don't call him what the demon called him, right? Uh, that's the amazing thing. Uh, the demon fully uh, comprehends who Jesus is. And so last week, we said that there were three witnesses to Jesus in his early ministry, right? We talked about the Old Testament, we talked about John the Baptist, and then we talked about God at Jesus' baptism. Well, here is a fourth witness, right? 
but not necessarily the kind of witness that Jesus wants. Uh, Jesus doesn't want the demons proclaiming his name uh, because I think that even when they were proclaiming truth, uh, having a demon testify about you is probably not the look you're going for. You want, you want to have your people uh, proclaiming the gospel. So uh, Jesus would control the narrative. He was going to control the narrative of, of how he would be revealed, when he would be revealed, and to whom he would be revealed, uh, not on the demon's timeline. So uh, Jesus demanded this demon to keep quiet and come out. And the, and the demon, he obeyed uh, Jesus' command. And once uh, the demons left, uh, Mark again records the reaction of the witnesses. Again, they were amazed, but this time Mark uses even a different word from, from the last word. This word is the word thobeo, and it means trembling in astonishment. It's, it's even more amazed than they were before. Uh, they weren't sure what they were seeing. And so what did they do? They debated about it. They debated about it. Uh, I love that part because it's such a human reaction. You know, they had been waiting for their Messiah for centuries, right? Uh, and then John the Baptist comes and he says, your Messiah is coming. And then Jesus says, I am your Messiah. I am here. And I uh, teach with authority. I cast out demons. And then they debate, right? They, what more do you need? What else do you want him to do? Uh, and so... You know, we have the benefit now of looking back in hindsight uh, 2,000 years uh, from this side of the cross, and, and perhaps we shake our heads at these people, but I wonder, uh, you know, if, if we were in their shoes, would we have done the same? Uh, people are still debating uh, today, and that's what strikes me about this, is that 2,000 years uh, from then, people are still debating who Jesus is. And you know what? Whatever they decide does not change the facts of the situation one iota. Uh, you can deny that it's daytime if you want, but you'll be wrong, right? And you can deny that Jesus is God, but you'll be wrong. And there are eternal consequences to that. We hear so much today about uh, Jesus being a good man or a social justice warrior or, a, or an example, a moral example that we should follow. Jesus was so much more than that. He's God who came in the flesh to save people for their, from their sins. And any other explanation that falls short of that falls so, so far short of who Jesus actually was and so far short of the full truth. Uh, as soon as Jesus began this public ministry, people began to debate about who he was. And probably some people were convinced and probably some people were confused and probably some people were cynical and they thought that this was some kind of cheap magic trick or something like that. But what happened was the word about him spread. The word about him spread everywhere. And his word uh, puts us on the horns of, of uh, a decision. We have to decide. Who is Jesus? And your answer to that question determines whether you will spend eternity in heaven with him or eternity in hell apart from him. Let's close with a couple of applications. Again, true disciples follow Jesus. I was fascinated by uh, the le week leading up to the Super Bowl, as I'm sure many of you were, to, to listen to Patrick Mahomes uh, and Jalen Hurts both proclaim uh, their Christian faith. Uh, Patrick Mahomes said, my Christian faith plays a role in everything I do. I always ask God uh, to lead me in the right direction. So here you have uh, two Super Bowl quarterbacks uh, about to play on the biggest stage that they will ever play on, and they are using their careers and their platforms to glorify God. 
And that's what disciples do. We don't have that platform, of course, but we have our own platforms and we should be glorifying God in everything that we do. A true disciple, uh, even Jalen Hurts, even Patrick Mahomes, they make their lives and their careers a ministry. They integrate their lives into Jesus's mission for them. So for us, uh, we do the same. We integrate our lives into Jesus's mission for us. We don't fit Jesus around our lives. We immerse our lives into him and his mission for us. Uh, and that calls for a passionate commitment of obedience so that whatever we do, uh, we reflect our commitment to Jesus in our lives. So a true disciple follows Jesus. And also, a true disciples pass the baton. You know, in a, in a running relay race, you have four runners, and they, they run around the track one at a time, and they pass the baton uh, to the next one to complete their leg of the race. Now, John the Baptist was the first one uh, to carry the baton, but he had been arrested. Jesus took the baton from him. Jesus preached for three and a half years, uh, teaching his disciples and preparing to pass the baton on to them. And one of the great themes in Mark is, uh, will the disciples take the baton? Will they believe? Will they trust Jesus? Will they follow him and eventually take the baton from him? Well, we know from history that they did uh, because the faith grew and spread and has reached us uh, throughout the ages. And we uh, have taken the baton from those who preceded us if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And I'm encouraged, actually, that, that this revival that we're talking about is happening on college campuses, right? These are young people, you know, 18 to 21, 22. Uh, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that, that we have passed the baton on uh, to the next generation. And that's very encouraging to me because that's Jesus' plan. This is how the gospel advances. It's disciples making disciples, glorifying Christ and advancing his kingdom until the word has reached the end of the earth and Jesus returns. Amen? Amen, Amen brothers and sisters. That's what we're aiming for. Lord God, uh, we pray that this uh, revival happening in Asbury would spread to Grace Redeemer Community Church, Lord. We spray, pray that specifically. We ask it for our church, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would uh, refresh us, uh, fill us in a new way, uh, Lord, that uh, we would just catch the fire of, of what's happening around the country, Lord, and that it would spread from us to other places as well, Lord. Uh, make us true, excited disciples who are uh, growing in our own faith, making other disciples, Lord, and helping the gospel spread, advancing your kingdom on earth, Lord. And uh, we invite this Holy Spirit to come, Lord. May he fill our hearts. And Lord, may it all be for your glory. May it have nothing to do with anybody here getting the credit for it. May we raise your holy name, praise you for what is going on, Lord. And we just ask for more filling, more of you, Lord, uh, so that your kingdom would advance. And Lord, uh, we do pray for the day uh, when you will return uh, and fulfill your promises to, to uh, inherit your earthly throne. Uh, well, Lord, we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask in your precious name. Amen.